0: Welcome, this talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org.
1: So welcome to Insight LA Sunday Sit. Uh, My name is Casey. I'm happy to see everybody here. Um... Yeah, so today we're going to be chatting about, um, I forget the title, but breaking the concentration barrier, I think, is uh, what I put there on Facebook. So this concentration barrier, um, it's a kind of a term that I made up after what I witnessed within myself, is um, for many, many years in the beginning of my practice... Mm -hmm. I saw myself jumping from one uh, technique to the other, um, and I wanted this super-fast, awesome you know, technique that would get me to enlightenment, you know, next week. But I actually didn't even know how to still my mind. And I noticed that in, uh, in the West, you know, we're really fast-paced. And we have a lot of different techniques to choose from. And I see this a lot um, in others too. And we could even see it in the very culture of what is available for retreats and whatnot. If you Google Amazon with, you Google uh, mindfulness with Amazon, there's 26,000 titles that come up now. I remember when it was 4,000, I remember it was 4,300. so you see, like, mindfulness is very popular. Concentration. Or shamatha practice. The jhanas. let's say, in Theravada, we'd say, like, jhana practice. Uh, very few retreats. Lots of mindfulness. Very few. Eightfold path, of course. Mindfulness is just one of the eightfold paths. Right concentrations right before it, yeah? So... One one of the things, uh, maybe why this is, I think it's twofold. For one, the concentration practices, they take a very specific environment to practice, long-term. We could do them short-term, which I think is the best way to do it anyway. But long-term, you need a very specific setting to do the concentration practices because we're practicing on something not necessarily in the moment. Whereas mindfulness, we're bringing in Anything from the moment, right? So you could practice mindfulness anytime, anywhere. That's the beauty of it. Concentration practices a little bit different, but but very very key because we need the concentration practices to actually do the vipassana practice, to do the insight practices. So we have um, concentration or shamata, and then once we have the mind that is able to focus, then we could focus it to gain insight, vipassana. And then in the Tibetan tradition, once that's mastered, then you use that same focus and insight to find insight into the true nature of mind. So there's three stages. The first stage, we love to throw that one out. Like the foundational practices. If you say someone, okay, we're going to start with the foundation practice, or the preliminaries, were like, okay, get that over with. That's like reading the introduction to the book. You're like, skip it, skip it, skip it. That's how I am, you know? Like, okay, where's the good stuff? You know, like, pass, pass, all right. And so, um, as many of you know, Katie and I just got back from a trip in France, and um, we got to go to a Karma Kagyu center there, that was constructed by the late, amazing uh, Rinpoche, Kalu Rinpoche, one of the most amazing lamas um, of our time. And they said that we're going to do a shine practice. So this is the... Um, so, shamatha means concentration in Sanskrit. Shine is Tibetan. And the, the English translation is calm abiding. All the same word. But in Tibetan, usually, they say, we're going to do a shiné practice. So we are going to do a shiné practice. So, oh, wonderful. And Katie said, what's that? What are we going to do? And I said, oh, it's just, it's going to be a concentration practice. Don't worry. Like, there's no preliminary setup or anything. But when we got there, the teacher said, we're going to do a special shiné. And he kept saying special, special. I was like, well, what's that? It sounds awesome. It very cool. Um... And come to find out, we actually were able to do a very rare practice, one that I only heard of, but I've never seen it done before. And it was a practice on the elements. It was an element practice. And another very rare piece of it was that it was an eye-open external object practice. So this is very rare in the Buddhist tradition that they practice it in a group like this. Now, what's not rare, well, it is rare now, but this is how it was always done in the beginning. In the beginning, you would always meditate on an external object first. right? You would meditate on like a statue of the Buddha. Or they'd actually even color the earth. Like in the Theravada tradition, they have these nine-inch diameter like clay, and they would actually paint it different colors, and then you'd meditate on that. Or like in the Hindu tradition, they meditate on a shiny object like a coin or a crystal ball. Like this was the very foundational practices. They would do external practice, eyes open, right? And then you have an outer object and then an inner object and then no object. Those are the three stages. Yet... It's very difficult. I think one reason is that if you're in a group setting, like today, if we all want to meditate on an external object, which I think we're going to try it anyway, it's very difficult because there's a bunch of people in the room. And like the practice that we did, they had the objects up in the, cent- up, up in the front of the room, yet it was really hard to see them for everybody because, you know, it's just logistics, yeah? So it's very difficult. So this practice in particular, they had different objects that symbolized the different elements. These were geometrical in nature. And so the other piece that is a bit different, uh, just um, a bit rare, is short time, many times. So we did a very short meditation, just three minutes, and then on the object, and then we released for one minute, and then very intense three minutes, and then we released and did object shamatha for one minute. Yeah. And again, this is very standard, yet kind of lost, right? So we go on three-day retreats, ten-day retreats, and yet within those ten-day retreats, how often is the mind completely still? It's completely still, Right? So we have to practice these very short pieces. So I'm going to read a little bit about what Changi Rinpoche says, the difference between you know, insight and concentration. But how I like to see it is that if we're to practice basketball, for example, you do shooting drills. Yeah, like you just practice shooting. And then when you get into the game, of course, you're still practicing the technique that you learned right? But you did it in a very concentrated way during practice. Same thing. So with concentration practice, yes, you're doing the same thing in Vipassana, but you're doing it in a very concentrated way when you're just focused. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we can see the importance of kind of not practicing. Let's say if you just, you never practice, let's say you're training a basketball player, and you just go play the game. You kind of fumble around, but it really wouldn't have any focus technique. Yet in meditation, I'll speak for myself, I fumbled around for a good 10 years. I mean, I just fumbled around one thing after another, kind of, uh, you know, but never really focused until I really made it that a priority, really intensely focused. Now, once we have that intense focus of mind, now we have our skill set, then we could direct them to all these different techniques, but we can go deep with them because now we have the vehicle of a trained mind. Without the vehicle of a trained mind, it doesn't matter. It doesn't doesn't matter. We're never going to get anywhere, yeah? It's these really foundational practices that are so important. And we're going to go over we're going to practice it today, just how we could do this. And so that's a foundational practice with mind. And then we have ethics, which is a foundation practice. We have loving kindness, which is a foundation practice, right? All of those things help to stabilize the mind, right? Really hard to focus if you don't practice ethics, all those things, yeah. So a little bit um, from Chonggu Rinpoche. Actually, just to reiterate, too, this is Alan Wallace you familiar with Alan Wallace, he created um, a shamatha. Uh, he works with scientists and he does these shamatha retreats to, to, to check on um, the results of long-term concentrating, concentration training. Um, but he said, given the Buddha himself strongly emphasized the importance of developing shamatha and uniting it with vipassana, it's remarkable the degree to which the key foundational practices are marginalized and overlooked entirely in all schools of Buddhism today. It seems that everyone is in a mad rush to ascend to the more advanced forms of meditation without noticing that the mind that they are depending on for this heavily prone is heavily prone to alternating laxity and excitation. He continues, In traditional Buddhist texts, such as an intentionally imbalanced mind, is considered dysfunctional. It is unreasonable to think that such a mind can effectively enter into meditation. meditations designed to sever mental aff- afflictions at their roots. Although you could practice more advanced meditations without first achieving shamatha, you are bound to hit a plateau and then stagnate in your practice without recognizing that it is failing due to insufficient preparation in first refining attention. He was talking to a Tibetan doctor. Oh, how did he put it? I don't think I wrote it down here. But he said, from a Tibetan standpoint, all of you in the West are suffering from you're basically all psychotic, but depending, he says, but the funny thing is you're coping very well. He's like, he's like you're very sick, but you're coping extremely well. <laughs> just that we're kind of scattered brain. Um, so I want to read just directly from Changi Rinpoche. Um, Vipassana can be translated as an insight, a clear awareness of exactly what is happening as it happens. Shamatha can be translated as concentration or tranquility. It is a state in which the mind is brought to rest, focused only on one item and not allowed to wander. In Vipassana meditation, the meditator uses his concentration as a tool by which his awareness can chip away at the wall of illusion that cuts him off from, the, from living the light of reality. So again, in Vipassana meditation, the meditator uses his concentration as a tool. Right. So we have the concentration of Samatha first. Yeah. The object of Vipassana meditation practice is to learn to see the truth of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, or dukkha, and selflessness of phenomena, or emptiness. Yeah? So that's the goal. It's really the goal in both of them, but one is more just foundational. I'm just going to read the full quote too. Most systems of meditation emphasize the shamatha component. The meditator focuses his mind upon some items such as a prayer, a certain type of box, a chant, a candle flame. If you've never done that one, I did that one for years. The candle flame is amazing. A religious image or whatever and excludes all other thoughts and perceptions from his consciousness. The result is a state of rapture that lasts until the meditator ends this session of sitting. It is beautiful, delightful, meaningful, and alluring, but only temporary. Vipassana meditation addresses the other component, which is insight. In Vipassana meditation, the meditator uses his concentration as a tool by which his awareness can chip away at the wall of illusion, that cuts him off from the living light of reality. It is a gradual process of ever-increasing awareness into the inner workings of reality itself. It takes years, but one day the meditator chisels through the wall and tumbles into the presence of light. The transformation is complete. It's called liberation. It's permanent. Liberation is the goal of all Buddhist systems of practice. But the roots to the attainment of that end are quite diverse." So again, using the stable mind to penetrate the veil of illusion. So that penetration part is the insight. So when we're looking at phenomena, this could be inner phenomena, external phenomena, this is insight. We could just be looking at our breath. But the true nature of breath is ultimate reality. But we have to hang out with breath long enough and stable enough to realize that. Does that make sense? And that's when the concentration practices come in to play. Mm-hmm. It's this very kind of intense cutting through, right? It has to be very intense. And it co- it's kind of interesting, because I see this in, I just always speak for myself here, but my practice is that, and that's why it's good to go on retreat, but even in retreat is, what, when is the actual day when we give it all up And think we can do it? You know, when's that moment for ourselves where Buddha had said, okay, I'm going to sit underneath this tree and I'm not going to move until I attain enlightenment? You know, when is that one meditation going to be the meditation? Like, there's a lot of meditations. I'll sit down and I'll just kind of like set the timer. I'm doing my meditation today. But not with like all the zeal that I can muster, yeah? Like, 110%. 110%. Like, this is it. This is, this is it, right? So when we're really focused, and this is why the concentration practices are really short, but very powerful. You're like, not one moment does your mind wander. Not one moment. Absolutely not. You catch it. This is very, very strong, right? Training the mind very strong, very powerful. Okay, alright, so I want to practice, but I just want to clarify just a few main, main items here. Um, Actually what I want to talk about today is very, very simple. Um, Just a couple things. For one, is if you haven't already, try an external object. Try an open-eyed meditation. If you don't, if you can't figure out what to do, one of the most um, let's say in Buddhism, the common ancient practice would be to, and you could get this anywhere, is just simply a, a little statue of the Buddha. This would be this is very very common. Just a little statue of the Buddha. I think we've all done this one. If anyone's done a Vipassana retreat, and you go on the walking part. You're doing walking meditation, and I think everyone does this, right? You go into walking meditation, and they usually have some kind of nature aspect, and then you stop, and you're captivated by something in nature, right? There's like a bush, a rabbit, a bird, or something, and you're just, you're with it. So another very common one would be like a flower. People would a lot of times meditate on a flower, or a candle flame is really good. Yeah, so any of those. And then practice with really short intervals. Just really short. So we're going to do a practice here that we're going to do like three minutes, which seems like a short amount of time, but really a three-minute concentration practice is very long. So we're going to do like three minutes and then one minute. We're just going to keep going like that. So when you're really intensely watching, <laughs> watch how dull or agitated the mic could be in like three minutes, right? It's like, oh, wow. Another one is, speaking of the object, when we move from, this is objects in general, is this should be fun. Like pick something that you like. There's a lot to choose from here. Like. There's bliss meditations, uh, you know, mantra meditations, object medit like uh, external object meditations. Mindfulness needs to be mindful of something, but it doesn't matter what. Like, pick something that brings you joy. Like, if a certain deity or figurine, like for me, Chenrezig, the Buddha of Compassion, that um, I just have a connection with the Buddha of Compassion. So when I look at that figure, it brings me joy. So I love to meditate. I usually have the figure of compassion. I have Chenrezig out. No matter what practice that I'm doing, I have that in front of me. So just do something that brings you joy. If it's a certain mantra that brings you joy. You know? It's easier for us to focus when we like what we're doing. Right? Like we notice that the things that we like were automatically fallen into a meditation. Yeah, it's easy. You know. And in meditation, once we get over a hump, and you know, we want to be careful when we say this because then we get attached to wanting this, but is that the bliss itself of meditation becomes the object. This is when we can go um, deeper quickly there there is a practice called tumo in the tibetan tradition where bliss very quickly becomes the object and then it's very easy right if something is painful aversion <laughs> arises quickly if something is very pleasurable then it's very easy to stay connected to that yeah very connected it's just like we stay connected to the pleasurable uh, pleasurable fantasies going on when we should be meditating on the breath, right? The breath is very boring, let's say. Let's say the breath becomes boring. But then we get a great fantasy of, uh, you know, what we're going to eat tonight or something like this. And this becomes way easier for us to meditate on all of a sudden. Yeah? It's like that. But then we're outside of the realm, really, of training the mind, of coming back. So this is just, in general... Try to pick something that's pleasurable, you know, itself. Okay. Short time, many times, drip by drip fills the cup. This is the very mantra of the Kama, the Karma Kagyu and Nyingma schools of Tibetan Buddhism. Short time, many times, drip by drip fills the cup. So. You definitely can do this practice if you want to do an internal um, object. You could absolutely focus on your breath or whatnot, no problem. If you want to do an open-eyed meditation, uh, there's a lot of people with water bottles. Uh, you could pick a water bottle, you could p- pick a cushion in front of you. Um, don't pick me, please. That'd be, that would be weird. <coughs> um, Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, sure. So
2: when you're normally meditating, when you're not doing the concentration one, but just mindfulness, you use the breath to bring yourself back. How? What are we using to? If we're meditating on an object and we get distracted, what are we <clears> using <throat> to bring ourselves back? The object. Just.
1: Yeah. You know, so. You, <clears throat> so. It's interesting because your eyes will never never leave the object. Well, unless you totally space out, you know. (laughs) But your eyes will be on the object, but your mind's going to wander away. And so the object is going to disappear for you. Every once in a while, the object will disappear, because you're going to be lost in thought. So once you notice that, then you bring the mind back. Now, this is a kind of confusing piece, too. I'm glad you mentioned this. Is that because even though shamatha and vipassana, or concentration and mindfulness, are two styles of meditation they are also separately two faculties of mind. So, I wanted to make this distinction. Mindfulness is a faculty of mind that is the vigilance, watching where am I, and it brings the mind back when it is away from the object. Concentration, once the mind lands back on the object, concentration is like a blanket. It it holds the mind down on the object. Right? So, in, b- in both practices, you're using both of those faculties of mind, not to be confused. yeah, yeah? So mindfulness and concentration are always working together. The emphasis is just a bit different. In the beginning, we need lots of mindfulness because the mind wanders, and when we come back, we need really strong concentration. Concentration has a lot of effort in the beginning, right? but As we go through the process, meditation is a stream that we jump into, right? This is all gathering up the momentum and jumping into the stream. Eventually, it's very effortless. Meditation in the end is very effortless. It almost takes, all it takes is the very ignition of awareness. This is it. So it's a good distinction so
3: can sound also be used as an object like absolutely I'm a, a song just like, like that's it could I use
1: that yes yeah so of course with mindfulness practice any of the sense doorways right to the present moment to be object so sound touch uh, course, any, any kind of body sensation, so all of those are okay. Yeah?
2: So if I'm going to be looking at this bracelet, mm-hmm.
1: okay.
2: um, I know with mindfulness, if we hear a sound, we receive it, but we don't develop a story or think about the source of the sound. So if I'm looking at this little Buddha on my bracelet, I think my mind is going to go to, it's shiny, it's bronze, it's uh, so how do you... That's kind of like creating little stories about this object. So how do I, how do I look at it as an object of concentration? I, I'm not clear.
1: Yeah, same thing. So you'll notice those thoughts still arising, and you're just pulling your mind back. So thoughts arise. Thoughts are going to arise anyway. Like still, no matter what practice, yeah? Thoughts arise, they hang out, and they go. So same thing. The thoughts are arising. You're allowing... And if you get pulled by them and you get lost in them, you bring the mind back to the object. So this is just, it's just visual. Just like just one of the senses, just a visual meditation, yeah.
2: So we're just looking at an object but not thinking about the object, and that's the concentration, is just like the staring at the thing and
3: not thinking about it? Yes,
1: yep. So this is a neck down exercise (laughs) <laughs>
3: it's a neck
1: down. We will use your eyes, but yeah, no analyzing, no conceptualizing. You're just looking and you're not trying to become one with it. you're not doing anything. you know Well, there are practices like that. you know your consciousness merged with that consciousness? No, you're just looking, right? You're just looking, but you're looking not only with your eyes, right? You're looking with your. Your mind chitta, like your, your mind stuff, right? Chitta. Everything coming in, right? So the entirety of your, of your being is fully, the flashlight of your mind, fully present just right there. It's like your cat stalking something, you know? It's like fully there, right? There's a
3: really yeah. nice Buddha statue right over there. Can have
1: an oh yeah, yeah. Let me see if I, I'll put it right here. If people want to focus on that one. <clears throat> two pieces of this. The first piece is the object. The second piece, so it'll be a few minutes on the object, and then we're just going to rest in objectless or choiceless um, shamatha. So how many of you are familiar with that one? Just raise your hand, go ahead. Objectless, choiceless. So you're just aware of awareness. So you just kind of, just back, just take a step back and we call it like awareing. So you're just aware. And don't worry about it like if you don't know what that means. And this is why we don't start with that one. But you're giving your mind as chances to relax. But you're still, you're not meditating, but don't be distracted. That's soaking with Shay's, uh sage instruction. <laughs> It's very light, you know, that one. So you meditate on the object, and then I'm going to sound the, um, the bell. So I'm gonna set a timer here. And then we're going to do one minute of just resting, but not distracted. So you just open your awareness, and then three more minutes. And in that three minutes, very, very focused, okay, All right? Yeah, okay, here we go. Just resting one minute in choiceless awareness is still present. Focus. Okay. Just objectless. So not too loose, not too tight, just allowing the mind to rest in awareness how little effort you could use without getting distracted and being pulled away from thoughts. Or into thoughts. three minutes Easy, right? (laughs) No problem. (laughs) This has gone on for an hour. How was it, (laughs) for real?
2: (laughs) Is it normal to have a
1: headache after (laughs) you (laughs) do it? Maybe that's too tight.
0: It almost seemed easier to,
2: I don't know, maybe it was because it was only for one minute, but to just not try so hard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. When I was trying harder, it was almost messing with my head.
1: Yeah, and and that same level of effort can be used in both instances. Mm -hmm. And so this is what we, this is the balancing act. You know, the analogy of a sitar string, you know, back in Buddha's time he'd say not too loose, not too tight. So, so our focus has to be strong enough so we don't waver, but loose enough so we don't get tired and lose joy. Yeah, because then it, we could feel very fatigued. So, but it's all learning, where that line is. If you're concentrating
2: completely, here's what I noticed. It seemed like I was able to stick on. The subject, but I was aware of movement around me. I assume mm. that if you're truly concentrating, you're not aware of movement, or will it be noticeable other things other than the object?
1: Yeah, but still, you're still noticing inner objects too. You're still noticing thoughts. You might notice a sensation in your leg. You know, no, you know notice but those things. Does it
2: mean you're not, conf- you're not well, I mean, it seems like you can be focused.
1: Yeah, there, there's levels. There's levels of that where, you know, for one one of the first stages of concentration, where the stages you get lost and you get pulled back, and then you stop getting, you get closer to the object without getting so pulled away. And then there's a stage where you never lose sight of the object, you're still aware of everything moving and all that stuff, but you never lose sight of it. So this is called continual placement, where you never lose placement of the object. But then everything does start to slow down, especially the thoughts. When you have continual placement, those things in the background of the mind, they begin to slow. Yeah. And then we can, all, there is such thing as pratahara, We start to withdraw the senses. So this is when the sense doors start closing off. And literally, like Yogananda would say, stop the heart and go beyond. So there is a final stage of like dissolution of... Even the senses this is a very deep, uh, called you know samadhi absorption. You know, like very. But those are all along the way. So our focus is is just to keep that that placement, no matter what's happening in the first stage, not to get drawn away. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I read a book, uh, living Buddhist masters, and it was about uh, Theravada uh, teachers living Theravada teacher. Some taught concentration first and then mm-hmm. mindfulness second. Mm-hmm. Some taught mindfulness from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the techniques that they taught was uh, viewing corpses in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, uh, apparently at some stage during concentration meditation, you develop an internal image of the thing that you focus on. Mm-hmm. And so they would go back to their hut and then see corpses everywhere. <laughs> and so, uh, the, some mm-hmm. of the concentration objects mm-hmm. aren't without uh, problems. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> they call them signs. You know, you have a, a sign come up. Um, So, yeah, pick one that you like. (laughs) Death and impermanence is good, um, but maybe not as a consistent object. You know, they do bring in corpses and stuff at monasteries and whatnot, but maybe not as your main object, yeah. Uh,
3: I noticed for me that I think when I usually meditate, um, I bring uh, my awareness to my breathing and sound. Mm-hmm. So I noticed during this practice, I was looking at the object, but my mind kept wanting to go back to sound or to breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to kind of like, no, wait, object here mm-hmm. in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, that was just my observation.
1: Yeah. It's good to have a steady object. And then yet in the end, know that we're, that the main goal is that we tell the mind where to go. So, why do we meditate? For one, we get to choose what we want to think about and what we want to follow. And then the second, to know our true nature. So, it's good. It's good that your mind goes back to a consistent object. That's really good. Also, it's good every once in a while to be like, not, de- not to not be dependent upon that. To say, okay, I can move my mind wherever I want. Right. Yeah, yeah.
0: So I'm I use noting and I, I think I'm a little dependent on it too because I just have to keep saying seeing, seeing, seeing and then that keeps my mind on just seeing the object. Mm-hmm. And then I can say. <clears throat> but if but I also recognize that if thoughts come down my It's a the voice is a little louder. Sing. (laughs) Can you hear me? Sing (laughs) You know, so I'm a little bit using it to push it out, push out other thoughts, but Mm -hmm. I can do it, but I don't know if that's
2: okay or
1: Yeah, it's um It's like right effort, you know, where and again in the in the beginning it's more forced. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Like our concentration needs to be forced because it's new. You know, it's like if we start running, it's going to take a lot of effort at first. Or when we start a car off a stop sign, a stoplight, it takes a lot of throttle, and then we coast and just hit it every once in a while. Mm-hmm. So that's fine.
3: Mm-hmm. I too found myself saying "see, see," like the last one, which was the I think the most um, asking the most of me or most of my mind. And I heard myself,
2: like you, say "see," and I thought. And I stopped it, and I was fine. I don't know if that was it. Cool. Yeah. So for me, I, I, I can see how practicing mindfulness and meditation, how it translates into real life for me, because I find myself being more mindful of what I'm mm-hmm. doing like mm-hmm. in life, when I'm being good about actually um, practicing meditation. Mm-hmm. With the concentration meditation, what is like the bigger picture? what that's supposed to sort of do for you by like concentrating Mm -hmm. on an object for a period of time.
1: It doesn't help your life at all. (laughs) (laughs) We have to look at our motivation. No. Um, Again, this is to practice mindfulness um, and to really unravel the nature of reality. We need to be able to look very, very closely at at the essence of things, beyond the magical display, and to pierce that, we need a highly focused mind. If that makes sense, it's like um, it's like a scientist to really know something, or to be really good at something. You need to be highly trained and keep very consistent, and really unravel the mysteries of it, right? So, a, a stable mind is like um, like a laser, or they call it like a diamond cutter. You know, it's like. It could pierce through the veil. So with the mind wandering, we could only stay horizontal. So even if you're practicing mindfulness or something like that, no matter what practice, you're going to stay horizontal along the surface of the water, for example. But with this practice, you learn to go deep. So you drop the stone in the water, and instead of it floating back up or something like this, going back to the surface, you can go very deep. That makes sense? So by
2: practicing this, then you become, I mean, mean essentially better at meditating on mindfulness because you're more focused, you can concentrate
1: better. Exactly. Right. So you have shamatha, and then you have vipassana, where you use what you've learned, and then you can go to the nature of reality. So I use that basketball analogy. Like, if you just, you say, well, what's the difference between shooting hoops in practice or in the game? You're doing the same thing. You you are, but every professional from the, they still do shooting drills. To this day, all week long, they're still doing shooting drills. Even the teams in the NBA Finals are doing shooting drills this week, I'm sure, right? So it's just a really strict amount of time where you use what you're gonna use in mindfulness, but in a very direct, powerful way. Like not one moment of, of wandering. Yeah, just like really focused. Yeah. Yeah. Done that. So I sure the
2: bigger was,
1: that Great. Yeah.
3: yeah. Can you uh, go over the difference between uh, choosing an external object and an internal object? Like what's, what would an internal object?
1: be? like your breath, thoughts, emotions. Yeah. And, and again, it, and it's all about um, awareness itself, you know. It's all about what um, might be easier for you, but it is a good to realize the traditional stages. The traditional stages would be something external, and then internal, and then no object. It would just be awareness. Those are the usual stages. And I want to bring light to it today because usually that first stage of external object Especially in Buddhism, not so much in the more Hindu-derived meditations. They still use a lot of external objects, but it's just not so emphasized. So it's important to note that that's an option. In the tradition, would they do those three as a cycle, or would they stay on the the external object for a while, for like
3: weeks? I think I think it
1: depends. But yeah, you would probably. It depends. like the gentleman was saying that sometimes people practice mindfulness first or even in, sometimes in Tibetan traditions, they get pointing out first of the, your true nature of mind and then you go backwards and start seeing concentration. So, but um, I think for us, like practice this and see how it feels. Like Just try it out. I think that's the invitation and see how it feels for you.
0: Casey is no object
1: the same as changing object as changing object what do you mean by that you mean like choiceless
0: yeah like I'm I think choiceless and
1: changing objects are maybe the same thing yeah so there's in different traditions it's called different things like Mm -hmm. choiceless awareness like more Theravada um, or in Tibetan objectless shamatha Uh, so it's just Aware of awareness. And so changing objects could be one that because the object changes, your awareness, you're just aware, and all of a sudden you notice that, oh, the, there's a sensation in my knee. And okay, that takes a little, um, that's up front and center for me now, and then the car passes and you notice this, mm-hmm. but it's just kind of shifting. And then there's one, just aware of awareness. So you just, even those things you let go and you come back to just being aware itself, being awareness itself.
2: Yeah. Is there a difference between what we learned that was generally movement included, breath is movement, body skin is movement. The Buddha is stationary, I think, I mean I know it's not really, but given my level of awareness, Buddha yeah. <laughs> And stationary difference does it make whether you're using an object that moves versus something that's stationary, if any?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. That's a good question. Test it out. Well, yeah.
2: it's easier if there's movement, isn't it? Because our minds tend to move. Breath moves, body sensations move. Uh, but if I was looking at a reflection on the ball, yeah. and it was stationary, it was totally... Nothing mm-hmm. to keep you there in a way, the way breath is. Or, but it's also easier to kind of stay on without kind of going to the end of your breath and then floating off somewhere and then <laughs> coming back and you inhale again. You
1: know. That's what I was thinking. Like it, it, pros and cons, yeah. Because being that it's already inanimate and very still, and our yeah. mind is becoming very still, mm-hmm. then yeah. in that way it's it's much easier. Okay. Okay. Um. Yeah, and eventually the objects will always change, yeah? yeah. Like our perception of the object will always change and all that. But really keeping it on whatever that is, that's the most important piece, yeah. Yeah, well, last one, I think we're about, really yeah, we're about
3: right. there. So if we were to use um, an internal object like compassion, yeah. if our mind wanders, then just bring it back to the feeling mm-hmm. of the
1: compassion. Mm-hmm. So thank you all very, very much. You have just
0: listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.